2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Let me read this passage. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the word of God, brothers and sisters. I love the way Paul builds his arguments. If you want to work your way through a passage that Paul's written, in particular when, when he's trying to make some doctrinal points, uh, you can do it just by highlighting the therefores and the sos and the and ifs and those type of, of transition because uh, Paul puts layer upon layer and he's really good at that technique by the time Paul's done, you can hardly help but to agree with what he has to say. And he's done that in this passage here. But let me get you caught up on where we are in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul spent the first three, three and a half chapters establishing his credentials as an apostle, as a messenger of God. That was necessary because uh, from the time he left the Corinthian church, there was a little bit of tension over when he was coming back and, and some... Uh, teachers rose up in the church and began making accusations against Paul. Some of them were kind of trite, but some of them were fairly significant. They, they said he didn't look like an apostle. He didn't sound like an apostle. He was too, long, too small, a little too scrawny, didn't have that big apostolic voice that sometimes people expect from speakers. And, but most of all, the accusation against Paul was that he must not be an apostle because he's had too many hardships in his life. Anybody that was blessed by God wouldn't have that type of hardship. And, you know, that kind of went in line with a lot of Jewish traditional type of teaching, except the Corinthian church wasn't predominantly Jewish. They were predominantly Gentile. So Paul mounted something of a defense, uh, and his defense was based on the fact that he knew the Corinthian church, that he was the father of the church. He went there and helped establish it. And they knew him, and he knew them. Now, Paul relied not on a lot of argumentative uh, terminology. What he relied on 
was Christ in him and Christ in them. And he was confident and trusted them enough, trusted enough that Christ was in them, that they would be able to set aside this teaching. But Paul was very careful in making his case. Basically, what it came down to was, you know me, I know you, Christ is in me, Christ is in you, we're, re- we're united in Christ, so we know better than this teaching, they just kind of needed a refresher. So, towards the end of chapter 3, going into chapter 4, uh, Paul begins to do a little bit of a transition, he does a summary, his credentials have been established, and he begins uh, delivering uh, truth. So in chapter 5, he kind of zaps him with a universal truth that we all know, but we don't always realize. And it was the idea that we have a heavenly dwelling, that if we are saved, if we are one in Christ and he is in heaven, then in every sense of the word, while we were down here on earth, we are in heaven as well. Now, this is a theological concept. Uh, just to simplify it, it's called the already and not yet uh, we are in anticipation of going to heaven, but our arrival in heaven, in our heavenly dwelling, is guaranteed because we are united with Christ and that's where he is. So anything that would cast doubt upon that, we have to set aside as a questionable teaching. Paul kind of established that in the first half of chapter 5. And so that kind of brings us up to where we are. Um, chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5, asks a question, and I think it's a formidable question, and I'll pose it to you right now. It is, what seizes you? What seizes you? Now, as we go through these 10 verses, uh, this is going to make a bit more sense, and hopefully it will touch your heart the way it's touched mine this week. Our sermon for today is called Seized. Now, if you look in your bulletin, you see that the sermon was called Reconciled, or maybe Reconciliation. This just goes to show you how fluid things are around here. So I changed the title of the sermon last night. Uh, So this is part nine of our series, I Am Content. And and, and I want to remind you while we're talking about this, how all this works together. We talked about Joshua. We we started a three-book series with the book of Joshua. Um, Joshua is a prophet of God, sent by God, commissioned by God, anointed by God to speak to him, God sends him to uh, the enemy camp and to Nineveh and wants him to prophesy there. Well, Joshua's not happy about that. Joshua is unhappy at the beginning of the book. Joshua is unhappy at the end of the book. He's literally sitting on a rock saying, I knew if you did this, these people would get saved. Now look what's happened. They're saved. So it, it's not really the best method in evangelism that we see in the Bible but there are other lessons to be learned from the book of Joshua. One of them is that God doesn't smite Joshua. I like that idea. You know how much I like the word smite. You know, that there's not some lightning bolt that comes out of the sky for, for Joshua's insolence towards God. Yes. Did I say Joshua? Jonah. Thank you very much. Who, who corrected me on the first Corinthians? <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't know this morning was going to be interactive. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, so Jonah's upset at the end of the book. And, and the, the, the huge lesson that we get from Jonah is that at the end of the book, God remembers who Jonah is, but he doesn't remember his sin. So we see this incredible grace 
flowing from God towards the Ninevites, towards Jonah. And, and, but Jonah's still mad. Now, the problem Jonah has is he's missed the blessing of God. God has been using him in a profound manner. He's been ministering to the sailors on the boat. He's ministering to the people in Nineveh. He's speaking truth to them. Lives are being transformed. And Jonah, like a petulant child, is sitting there being upset over the whole thing. So, so we see that we can be functioning in the church, but missing the fuller blessing of God. Now we go from Jonah, who's not happy over anything, to Paul who seems to be, the older he gets, Paul seems to be more and more content in everything. So there's a contrast between those and maybe something we could learn from it. Uh, and so that's why this, this series is called uh, I Am Content. So that takes us back to what seizes you. What seizes you? Now, uh, our passage has two hints to the right answer. Uh, the first hint comes up in verses 1 through 11, and it is that we have been ministered to. So we have been ministered to. We're going to see this in a way that Paul is ministered to. Now, the second hint comes in verses 16 through 21, and where we, where, what we're going to see in there is that we are ministers, that we are ministers. Now, I know we don't think of ourselves as ministers. I, I didn't grow up thinking of us as ministers. The only model I had for a minister while I was growing up was Reverend Ollie's. Now, Reverend Ollie's was the pastor, priest at the church that uh, we went to when I was small. Uh, on Sunday morning, he wore a long black robe. Uh, what I remember about him, he was very, very, very clean and had very gentle hands. When he shook your hand, it, was, it felt nice and soft. And he would come over to the house maybe once a year, and when he came over to the house, my mom and dad would run around hiding things before he got there, and he would sit, and he was very soft-spoken and very gentle, and he scared me. He just scared me. I thought that I was going to do something wrong in front of him, and that if I did, that I would get smited. <laughs> so, uh, to me, that was a minister, a guy who dressed in black clothes and and whose presence demanded that you change your attitude, change your demeanor, clean your house up, and when he left, then you could just put everything back the way it was before. Uh, so maybe some of you have had experiences like that, that that's the, the idea of a minister. You know, we also had, my grandfather was Greek Orthodox, the Greek priest would come over once a year and bless the house, and he would have a censer in his hand with smoke coming out of it, and he would have a... Uh, I, I don't even know what they call it. It had holy water in it. And he would throw the holy water all over the place while he was praying in Greek. And the guy scared me to death. Uh, I mean, he had a longer black robe on. This guy had on a big black hat that kind of with a drape that fell in behind it. And he was dark and, and I couldn't understand what he was said. And, you know, the, the only redeeming thing I ever got from him was the last time I remember him visiting, he was throwing the holy water around and he threw some in my face <laughs> and I, you know I was probably seven years old and I was like oh and I'm thinking don't wipe your face it's holy water <laughs> what's going to happen and I looked up at him and he looked down at me and he winked and it was the first indication that I had ever had that somebody who was called a minister could actually be a human being and so the guy blessed me in a way that I, I, I was never able to be blessed by Reverend Ollie's whose first name I thought was Reverend. 
because I, I, to this day, I couldn't tell you what his first name was. We just didn't have that connection. We, we, we weren't that personal. I didn't know the guy had a first name, and he scared me, and I was glad when he left. I hope that when you and I talk to each other that you're not glad when I leave, although, well, that may happen from time to time. So we're ministers. We're ministers, and so we might need to rethink a little bit about what a minister is, and hopefully we'll be able to work some of that out in the passage here. Let's, let's take a look at our first hint. We have been ministered to. Now, chapter 5, verse 10, the verse before our passage today, tells us a reckoning is coming. It tells us that, that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are all going to give an account for the things we said and the things we've done. Now, we, we went over this last week. We're not going to be judged into condemnation. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like, but I, I have a very strong impression that it's going to look like an all-new appreciation for the grace of God. Once we understand exactly how guilty we are and how much we're guilty of, and then find out that we are saved regardless of the things we've said and the way we've behaved, saved by the work of Jesus Christ, by the person of Jesus Christ, then we will have a much deeper appreciation for God's grace. Those who have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be cast into the fire, into what our uh, statement of faith says is to uh, eternal conscious torment. So that's the last thing we heard from Paul was a reckoning was coming. And so here in verse 11, he says, therefore. Now, he's referring back to this reckoning. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting phrase. This is not referring to some trembling, um, uh, terror-stricken notion that God is going to get back at us for something. This is a reverential awe of who God is. It's a recognition of his pure holiness. It's a recognition of his perfection. It's a recognition of the fact that he is a creator of the world and that he had his hands on each one of us in the womb, forming us and making us into who we are. So now this runs a little bit contrary to some of the teaching you'll hear from some sectors of the church today in which God is some kind of heavenly grandmother or something, just waiting on the throne for us to get there. And when we get to heaven, we're going to run to him and jump in his lap. Or maybe even worse, when we get to heaven, he's going to jump up from the throne and come running to us. Okay? That's a nice notion. There's enough truth in that that we can accept the fact that God takes joy in who we are and our salvation, but it completely ignores the fact that he is holy, high, and lifted up. It completely ignores the fact that the elders in heaven are standing around the throne. There's a sea of glass between them and the Lord in heaven, and they throw their, their, their crowns down on the sea of glass. None of them runs and jumps in his lap. And that's in Revelation. That's not in the Old Testament. So when we hear fear of the Lord, what we, what we should be thinking about is that moment where we stand in heaven and gaze upon the glory of God, something that is so far beyond our comprehension, his perfection and holiness that is so pure and so, so completely undistilled that we can barely stand there 
and we were overwhelmed with the glory of God. This is what Paul means when he says the fear of the Lord. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we, and, and the we here is a royal we. Paul's talking about himself. He says, we persuade others. Now, Paul has dedicated his life to persuading others. If you go through uh, everything Paul's been through from the time the scales fall off of his eyes uh, to the, his very last epistle, you'll find out that Paul, everything Paul does is, in, is done in order to engender an opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, if he gets arrested, he goes to jail and he shares the gospel. If he gets released from jail, he comes out of jail and when everybody goes, how was it? He shares the gospel. He's, he's set before... Um, uh, the, the uh, authorities in the region. Matter of fact, we see in Acts chapter 26, or is it chapter 28? Acts 26, 28. Paul goes before Felix and Festus and Agrippa, and he's standing before Agrippa, and Agrippa has all the authority here. And, and instead of talking to Agrippa about the way he governs the, the province, instead of talking about political issues, instead of talking about how unfairly he's been treated, instead of talking about changes he'd like to see in the region so that his people would be taken care of, Paul shares the gospel with Agrippa. And Agrippa is so moved by it, he said, boy, Paul, if you keep on talking to me about the gospel, you're going to transform me into a Christian. You're going to convert me. You're going to persuade me, Agrippa says, to become a Christian. And Paul says, yeah, I'd like to do that. All the people that are following you too. So Paul's life is dedicated to this persuasion, the persuasion of others. But he's fallen under this criticism. He's fallen under these accusations. He says, but what we are is known to God. He said, regardless of what I've been accused of, God knows who I am. Again, it's the royal we here, but there can be a collective connotation to this. So what we have to understand is that we're called to be persuaders, but we're also known to God. Each one of us. I mean, Scripture tells us that God knows when a bird falls out of the, fly, out of the sky. He knows us. He knows our heart. Oh, that's great. I love the fact that God knows my heart when I'm having a noble thought. <laughs> and I want to say, did you see that thought, God? That was pretty noble. That was pretty holy. There are times when I'd rather he didn't know my heart. Huh. Well, what do we do with those times? Brothers and sisters, we use them as the opportunity to repent. Those little times where God reveals our heart to us, are opportunities for us to be drawn closer to God. They're a little gift from the Holy Spirit who says, I'm here, I'm inside you. I want to remind you of this because this is standing between you and that fuller blessing of God that we were talking about before. God, Paul says, God knows me. And, I, and what we are is known to God and I hope is known also to your conscience. He's appealing to the Corinthians again, saying, you know who I am. And then he says in verse 12 that, He's not commending himself to them again. He's not trying to build himself up, but he's given them a cause to boast about Paul so that they may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, he's talking about those who are saying, he doesn't look like an apostle. He looks like this. He looks like that. And he doesn't sound like an apostle. An apostle should sound this way. They've got preconceptions of what an apostle should sound like. Matter of fact, most of them 
satisfy their own preconceptions about what an apostle sounds like. They're really saying to, to the Corinthian church, it's not Paul that's an apostle, it's us. You need to be looking at us. Paul is saying this all happens in the heart and it happens with people that you know. So don't, don't follow those people who are talking about what things appear to be. Now, that has incredible ramifications for us because as human beings, we have a very strong tendency to do that, don't we? Yeah, I know some of you are thinking, not me, not me. Let me ask you something. What do you do when somebody looks like a Democrat? Or what do you do when somebody looks like a Republican? Or even worse, what if they look like a Libertarian? <laughs> okay, on, on a day like today, what do you do when somebody looks like a Dallas Cowboy fan? Ooh. Yeah, now we're getting a little close, close home. Some of you, what do, what do you do when somebody looks like a Redskins fan? Yeah. What do you do? What do you do when somebody doesn't line up with how you think and how you feel about your surroundings? Do you ever judge them by what they look like rather than what's in their heart? Now, check this out. Because we, we have a tendency to categorize people. And maybe you don't have it as strong as I do. I do. I want to I pigeonhole them. I want to nail them down. I want to figure out who they are. Then I want to make my decision about them. There are only two types of heart. There are only two types of heart in every person who ever lived. There's a regenerated heart and one that's not regenerated. Listen. There are only two types of people in the world. Two types that mean anything at all beyond the moment. There's lost and saved. And when we're looking at people, what we need to figure out is whether or not they're lost or saved. Now, not to judge them, not to condemn them, not to point a finger to them, but to decide whether or not they are my brother and sister in Christ and I am united with them, or they need to be my brother and sister in Christ and I am united to them. Think about this for a second. Let's take it out of the sports arena. What if they look like they're Muslim? Ooh. What if they look like a Muslim terrorist? You know, we've been told these people are our enemies. And that's, you know, maybe in the world they are, but Scripture tells us we do what with our enemies? We pray for them. We bless them. And we have made the mistake of thinking that they're our enemies when actually what they are is our mission field. Everybody that's lost, everybody that has turned their back on Jesus Christ is not the enemy, brothers and sisters. They're the mission field. There's only two types of hearts. Those that are saved and those that are lost. We are to unite with those who are saved. We are to witness to those who are lost by everything we do. And we're going to see that as we go forward. And then Paul says in verse 13, for if we beside ourselves, now he's referring to the fact that they said he's crazy. He's a fanatic. There's too much scripture coming out of him. There's too much holiness coming out of him. You've got to be real about this sort of thing. He says, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. He said, if I'm a fanatic... I'm a fanatic for God. And if what I'm saying is making sense, 
If, if, if as I'm speaking to you, uh, if, if it sounds like I'm in my right mind, well, that's for you. I want to be fanatical for God and right for you. Did anybody ever call you a fanatic? You know, if they do, you look them in the eye and go, yeah, I'm fanatic, and I want to be more fanatical. The biggest compliment you can make towards me is that I am a religious fanatic. I'm fanatical about Jesus Christ. I'm fanatical about persuading people to come to Jesus Christ. It's the only reason I'm here on this earth is to be fanatical about Jesus Christ. Paul says, you bet I'm fanatical. I'm fanatical about God, and I'm fanatical about you. And I'm fanatical about your posture before your Father in heaven. And then we get to verse 14. This is the heart of what Paul wants to say. This is, this is the essence of his message. Listen to what he says. He said, I'm, I'm fanatical. How fanatical am I? The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. This is huge. It's a Greek word, zuneko. Now, it can mean a lot of things, okay? Uh, it, we, we saw him use this in Corinth earlier uh, in, in Acts 18.5 uh, when Timothy and Silas come to Corinth. They can't find Paul because he was occupied with the word. It's the same thing. He was zunexo with the word. Okay, so what, 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 what are we trying to hear? What's Luke trying to say in Acts? What he's trying to say is Paul was so consumed with the word, so consumed with this persuasion and this call to preach the gospel that he didn't notice that Timothy and Silas came. He was, he was totally focused on doing what God called him to do, totally consumed with what he had been charged with. So that's a, that's a good thing. Zunexo can mean occupied with, but Here's what else it means. It means holding together. Okay, Paul is held together by the love of Christ. Uh, it's, it's what keeps Paul going. And Paul, this would have meant a lot to Paul because Paul was falling apart because of everything he had gone through. Beatings and, and shipwrecks and, and imprisonments and so on and so forth. So it can mean held together. It can mean sustained. Paul is sustained by the blood of Christ. He's not sustained by what people around him think. He's not sustained by what people around him do. He's not even sustained about the food that they bring him when he's in prison. He's sustained by the blood of Christ, by the love of Christ. Now, that can mean it, but let me tell you something, and, and here's, here's where it comes home. Because in this context, what it means is seized. Paul is seized by the blood of Christ. Oh, there's physicality here. There's, there's a violence here, if I may use that word. Meaning that Paul has been dragged out of his old life and placed into this new life. The transformation in Paul has been fantastic. And it's been, it's been hard for him to deal with at times. How many people can relate to that? Okay. But Paul has been seized by the blood of Christ. Why? Did, did the Holy Spirit wave some kind of magic wand over him? Did, did an angel come down and go, whing, you're seized? Okay, well, you know, part of that may be true, 
if any of us have a relationship at all with Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit has moved in our heart. So there's, uh, there's a move by the Spirit that we depend on here. Uh, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have that inkling inside that you want to be closer to Him, uh, you have been seized. And, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But some participation is required. So if we're going to walk in that being seized, then there are things that we have to do as well. And, and Paul kind of confesses that because here in the second half of 14, he says, because we have concluded this. He says, I'm seized, I'm consumed, because I've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all has died. Now he's got this from Scripture. Not from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. He said, so one has died for all, therefore everybody dies. He's not saying anything new here. We know the fatality rate in the human race is what? 100%. We all die. That's all Paul is saying here. And he died for all that. So here's why he died for all. That those who live, now he's talking about those who have eternal life, those who have embraced Jesus Christ, those who have been regenerated, those who recognize him as Lord and Savior, those who eternally believe in him might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now there's the transition that Paul's going through. There's the magnitude of how he has been seized. He no longer lives for himself, but he lives for the one who died for him. Brothers and sisters, that takes some work. That takes some serious heart work. Our natural heart tendency is to live for ourselves. Our natural tendency is to do something so that God will do something for us. There's nothing wrong with that. It's our natures. Now, God is changing that in us, but it's a process. It takes some time. It takes some time to begin living for him instead of ourselves. We have to concentrate on it. We have to make some conscious decisions to place him in higher priority than ourselves. But our natural tendency is to be self-serving. And sometimes we will, we will evaluate the world around us and what it could or should be doing for us. So Paul says he's come, he understands his seizing and because he's read the scriptures. He's discerned this from the scriptures so that we might no longer live for ourselves. The sacrifice that Christ made has seized Paul. It controls him. It dominates his thoughts. Dominates his emotions. So do you see do you see how Paul was ministered to? The Holy Spirit's moved upon him. He's moved in harmony with the Spirit. Uh, he strives to be obedient to the Father. And the transformation keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. Just like these so's and therefore's and, and if's go deeper and deeper and deeper as you get deeper into this passage. So Paul's been ministered to, and as he was ministered to, everything changed. Everything in Paul's life changed. He was the guy for the Sanhedrin. He was after Christians. He wanted to imprison them, to execute them. And he was given a new life. We saw that in verse 11. He was given a new heart. We saw that in verse 12. And he has a new commitment and a new dedication in verse 13 and 14. All because 
Christ died for him. Now, the same is true for everyone who believes in Christ. Everyone who calls upon him has a new heart, has a new dedication, has a new life. Does does that seize you? Has that got a hold of you yet? Let me, let, let me describe what this seizing is like. And, I, I, you know, it, it's highly spiritual. But maybe this illustration will help you. It, it helped me to understand it. Uh, again, when I was little, lived in a small house in Youngstown. The, uh, had a lower floor and an upper floor basement where they had to build plumbing into it because the house was built before there was indoor plumbing. And there was a stairway going from the living room, which was in between the kitchen and the, and, and the dining room, going upstairs. And my room was at the top of the stairs. Uh, I was watching Twilight Zone, which was really a bad idea. Uh, you know, I was seven years old. Twilight Zone came on at 9. It was over at 9.30. Uh, my dad wanted me to stay up so I could see it because it was always scary. I don't remember the show, but I was walking up my steps, and they're dark, and I'm thinking, there could be monsters up here. I got to the top of the steps. I walk into my room. There's no light in my room. There's a dresser there. I can see just barely, and on top of my dresser is this large picture of a silhouette my mom had done when we were at the county fair, and it kind of stared out at us. My dad hadn't hung it on the wall yet, so it was resting on the dresser. I pulled my pajamas out of the drawer. I slammed the dresser drawer, and that picture started to slide. And the first thing I saw was a silhouette coming closer to me. And the second thing I heard was the noise. And it was going, and I absolutely freaked out. I, 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 I did it like this, and I started screaming, ah! Now, as soon as I started screaming, I realized that it was just the picture falling, but I couldn't stop screaming. I was out of control. My dad came running up the steps. My mom's on the bottom of the steps. Is he dying? What's going on? You know, and I'm standing like this. You know, my dad walked in the room. He grabbed me. He said, everything's okay. He turned the light on. As soon as he turned the light on, everything changed. (laughs) Oh, no monsters. (laughs) Okay, but I was so... I was so surrendered to that moment of fear that it dominated everything in my life for those few short seconds. That's what being seized is like. And the question is, what are you seized by? Well, we've seen our first hint of an answer. Uh, We have been ministered to. Let's look at our second hint that is the right answer. Verse 16 through 21. We're ministers. You know, we've seen this change in Paul. Um, It's had a profound effect on him. He begins to describe it in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. This goes back to that whole idea of you, you, you don't judge by what you see. You judge by what's happening in the heart. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So, and and this has these, these far-reaching ramifications in our lives. We don't regard by, by what is tangible. We regard by what is spiritual. See, this is why Paul's been setting up these contrasts between what can be seen and what is unseen. Because uh, he, he's driving to this point right here. 
Uh, we have to look at people as to what is unseen. We have to make a determination whether or not they're a brother or sister, whether or not they need to be saved. And then we have to act according to scriptures. And he says so much in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, what's Paul trying to do here? He's trying to say that the transformation that comes along with salvation should be readily apparent. This should be obvious. That you should be wearing it. That you should be living it. That when people around you look at you, they should see that you're being changed. They should see something other than the old you. They should see Christ in you. Now that would be a good question to ask ourselves. Am I exhibiting Christ? Am I an example of who Christ is? That's a great question to ask yourself before you respond to somebody who says something offensive. Like, your spouse or a co-worker. It's a great thing to think before you post that posting on Facebook. If people read this, uh, will they see Christ in me? Will they see that I have been seized by the love of Christ? Or will they see somebody that's evaluating them by what they see? The transformation needs to be evident so that we can give glory to God and how he changed it. So that, I'm going to do a poll on you here, so that people who look at us realize that they can be changed as well. Realize that they can receive the same grace we've changed. Realize that people can look at us and go, you know, you know have you ever had anybody tell you, you know, I've been around the church for a long time, I've never been treated as well as you have treated me. Well, that's not you. That's Christ in you. That's the love of Christ come pouring out of you. Let me tell you how this works. We've been talking for a long time about being vessels of grace. If you've got a glass and you pour some fresh cool water in it and let it sit there, after a couple of days, it becomes what my dad used to call stale. It becomes tepid, it becomes lukewarm. And, and you know, if, you, if you're on the city water around here, after a couple of days, you begin tasting it differently. It doesn't taste refreshing at all. But you fill that glass with water and pour it out and fill it again with fresh water and the water stays refreshing and cool. That's us. Grace has been poured into us. If we withhold the grace... If we withhold the love of Christ which has been poured into us abundantly, if we refuse to share it, it will become stale. It will become tepid and lukewarm. When we become vessels of grace, it means that we pour it out as fast as it's poured in. And the great thing about that is if we understand what Scripture says about this, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. We get more and more and more. We get more and more refreshed. In a way, it cleanses us. It draws us closer to the Father. It makes us realize where the grace comes from. And as we become dispensers of it, we become more grateful for the grace we received and the grace we're about to receive. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Is if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're new vessels of God's grace. Then in verse 18 he says, all this, everything I've been talking about, all these therefores and, and so's and so on and so forth, comes from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us what? Look in your Bibles. What did Christ give us? A ministry of what? Yeah. <laughs> a ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because he's reconciled us to him. We are ministers of reconciliation. You see, we've been ministered to. We're called to be ministers. We are ministers. doesn't ask if you, if you want to be a minister. It says you are a minister of reconciliation. What we were given, reconciliation, we give away. Same is true of every blessing that God gives us. Whatever we're given, we give away. We give away. And God brings more. So as we begin to reconcile, we begin to minister in reconciliation, we are more closely reconciled to God. It's a process that will keep on going on and on and on. And then we see this here. That is, in Christ, in Christ God was reconciling the world. This is cosmos. Uh, We've got to be careful. John uses cosmos differently than Paul does. John's generally talking about the physical world that needs redemption. Paul is usually, when he uses the word cosmos, talking about all peoples. And this would be significant to the Jews uh, because to the Jews there are only two types of people, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, so Paul's message is that God is recon- uh, reconciling all sorts of people, not just one group to himself. Not, and the way he's doing this is by not counting trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is what we're called to do. We're called to be messengers of reconciliation. That needs to seize us, just like the the love of Christ needs to seize us. It needs to pour from us. It needs to be reflected in everything that we do and we say, in every way that we interact with those people around us, in particular with those who are lost. They need to see reconciliation available to them in us. And in verse 20, he says, Therefore, we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. You're an ambassador for Christ if you believe in Him. God making His appeal through us. Now, a lot of people think that that's going to be some sermon that we preach, but it's not just what we say, it's what we do. It's how we live. It's how we treat the people around us. Making His appeal for reconciliation, for their need of reconciliation, for their need of repentance, through us and how we live our lives. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled for God. Paul's an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Another question we should ask ourselves, who am I an ambassador for? Sports team? Political party? Cause? Myself? Am I an ambassador for myself? Is my goal in life to be comfortable and elevate myself? We're called to be ambassadors for salvation. (laughs) We're called to be ambassadors for eternal life. You know what happens when, I mean, we're from Washington, D.C., right? What happens when an ambassador is appointed? There's usually some big celebration. You know, they're 
there, there's a party, there, there's a, a declaration. He's declared to be uh, an ambassador. Uh, he's recognized officially as an ambassador. And, and what does that guy do? He, he moves from where he was to Washington, D.C. And so he has a new life. He has a new home. He has a new job. And there's a new set of expectations put upon him because he's an ambassador. And what he does is he speaks. He speaks for the kingdom that he lived in. He speaks for the leader, for the master of the kingdom that he lived in. He represents that leader, that master, in everything that he does, in all aspects of how he lives and how he talks and how he interacts with people around him. And he acts in the full authority of that leader's name. He represents the people that he was sent from. That's the same thing with us. This is what Paul's trying to say. We're ambassadors like that. There's been a celebration. There's been a declaration over us of our, our justification. We've been recognized. We have a new life. We have a new home. We have new expectations. We speak for our king and our master up in heaven. Somebody say amen. We represent him in everything that we do and, and how, in how we live and how we speak. We act in authority and in his name and we represent his people. That's what we're called to do. For our sake, verse 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what happens if we walk in that job description. You know, but it doesn't say that Christ became sinful he took on our sin. And, and he took on our sin so that in him we can walk in the righteousness of God and be his ambassadors, be his representative, and be the ones who persuade and be seized, seized by the love of Christ. We're ministers of righteousness ministers of salvation, ministers of Christ. So our two hints to how do we answer this question of are, you, are we seized are that we have been ministered to and we've been appointed ministers. Does that seize you? If it doesn't, you have to ask yourself what does. What seizes me today? Brothers and sisters, one way or another, we will find, as Paul did, that the love of Christ controls us. The only question we have to really answer is are we going to fight it or are we going to walk in it? Are we going to resist being ambassadors for the love of Christ? Or we're going to walk in it, embrace it, and walk in the fuller blessing that God gives us in doing what we're called to do. Let's pray.